All right, we're in a, a series called Keep Watch. This has really been our Advent series, Keep Watch. We looked at Matthew 24 last week, tough text, really hard to understand. It's gruesome, it's scary, it's confusing. And at the end of it, we, we see this line that was like, it simplifies all the confusion. And it just says, keep watch. You don't know the day or the hour when the Son of Man's coming back. So keep watch, be ready. He tells a story. If you had known to, to keep watch, if you had known to keep watch, he says, you would have been ready. That's what it's going to be like for when the Son of Man comes. He says, keep watch. I'm trying my clicker, but it's, it's not working here. All right, let me try it now. All right. So here we are caught between two Advents. The, the first coming of the Lord Jesus, which we celebrate. You know, we've got Christmas trees and gifts, and we're remembering the manger and Bethlehem. We sing songs about it. It's beautiful. And then we're waiting on the second Advent when Christ returns. This phrase, two Advents, I was reading a commentary on Matthew in my text, and he, he uses this language to talk about Matthew 24 and 25. We're, we're the people between two Advents. He says the first Advent was for recruiting. The second advent is for accounting. So Jesus came in all his beauty and glory to draw us in, but he is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back as judge in all his beauty and glory, but with an accounting. So that's really what we're making space for this month is to hold those two things up, to celebrate and to anticipate. We've got a good text for that today. It's going to be Matthew 25, page 852, but I want to set the stage. I was having a conversation with one of my mentors, a guy named Scott, um, great man, man of God, and he was just observing. He says, have you noticed that our culture seems really drawn to safety right now rather than risk-taking? He says, you'll find exceptions everywhere, but most, of, most people want like safety and security. They, they, they don't want to take any risk right now. They're risk-averse. He says, what we need in the kingdom are people who are willing to take some risks. So I was sitting with that, and as I was sitting with that, I was reading a book by Mark Sayers. Mark Sayers, Australian thinker, pastor, just awesome, brilliant mind. He's got a, a little book called Reappearing Church. And what Sayers is, he's arguing, he says, we're in this period of massive decline in the Western church. The post-Christian culture is decimating the church. And he's praying for renewal. So what would it look like for the church to prepare for a revival, for a renewal, for an awakening? He says, you clearly, the foundation of his book is you can't do what you're doing right now. (laughs) If right now got you into decline, we're going to have to do something different to get us into renewal. That makes sense to me. But he has this phrase he's talking about in one of the chapters of his book that he calls, he says, we have to shift from consumer Christianity into contending Christianity. Consumer Christianity is just like low commitment, low risk. And one of my concerns is that just kind of culturally, Christianity can't help but adopt this consumer spirit. Now, there's a lot of things in culture that we would say, oh, that's awful. We don't want anything to do with that. And if you saw it, like, let's say I was waving an American flag up here talking about how great America is instead of focusing on Jesus. A lot of you would be like, that's a little, ah. You would balk at it. You would, you would notice that's culture coming into the church, right? Especially if there were just white people and that was happening, you might even be more sus- suspicious. But there are other pieces of culture that seem to be more hidden and yet pervasive. 
This is a phrase he uses. They're, they're pervasive yet unseen. They're everywhere, but we haven't noticed them yet, and that's part of why they're everywhere. One of those, he says, is consumer Christianity. Here's his definition. He says, consumer Christianity is a form of cultural Christianity, the stuff that you're bringing in from the outside, that compromises the cross with self. There's a lot of different ways that the gospel can be compromised. It can be compromised with the flag, he says. But this is the form of the compromise with self, mixing the worship of God with the worship of options, personal autonomy. That means you get to choose. It's whatever you want. Low commitment and opinion over responsibility. I'm going to just break down some of what he's talking about just to set the stage for Matthew 25. I think Matthew 25 has something to say about consumer Christianity. So there's three signs. I want you to like do a little heart check today on if you recognize these signs in your life or perhaps in the, the people around you. All right, the first sign is what he calls paralysis. You know what paralysis is, where you can't move, you're just stuck. Have you noticed how hard it is to have it all? Try going to Elwood Shack. Uh, I went with Stephen this week. It's like, there's a hundred different ways you can have barbecue. It's just the options make it to where it's like, it's going to take me 10 minutes to work through your menu just to figure out the one thing, because there's too many. There's just so many options. I was on uh, trying to figure out uh, healthcare, right? I got to get insurance by December 15th. I'm on healthcare.gov. I'm there's 85 options for my family that we're qualified for. It's like, that's too many. I went over and I saw my parents in Henderson. They're trying to work through the marketplace and healthcare. And they have just dozens and dozens of options. My mom has notepads filled with notes that she's been taking. She's been spending days researching this choice. Really what she needed was me to show up and say, this is the plan we got. And she's like, okay, I'll go with that one. <laughs> There's just too many. It's hard to have it all. And when you try to have it all, it can be a little paralyzing, right? It, have you ever felt stuck on the cereal aisle, right? You know what I'm saying. If you're on Amazon, you just need a light bulb. It's like, well, <laughs> which one? There's so many options. Having it all can easily lead to like a, a, a hunkering down, a slowness, a, a paralysis is his word. You see that? He, he says, consumer culture tells us that we can do it all, yet we become paralyzed in endless options. The FOMO, the fear of missing out, is paired with what one author calls FOBO, the fear of better options. This is pretty similar, right? Where it's like, I, I can't commit because there might be something even more perfect for me. So I'm just going to hold off until I can finally get there. We, we hedged. We live in a world of maybes and we're paralyzed at the prospect of actually committing to something. Out of fear that we might be choosing something that wasn't the absolutely perfect option. I feel that. McGinnis, this, this author, he reports that the fear of better options leads ultimately to the fear of doing anything. Unlimited options and the search for lifestyle perfection leaves us paralyzed and paralysis prevents renewal. So here's the logic. I can't do it perfectly or I can't do it all or I can't have it all. So I'm not going to try anything at all until I figure it out. Consumer culture has a cure, though, of course, for this paralysis. And there's a couple of cures, screens and stuff. Let me just paint a picture. This has probably been a picture in my home. You can have as many of these cures as you want. Imagine that you're watching a football game. You have Alexa streaming music while you're scrolling Instagram 
and eating like an Uber Eats delivery dessert while you're trying to defend yourself to your spouse that I am paying attention. You know what I'm saying? It's like there's so many cures to the paralysis, but it ends up that we're mostly just sitting on the couch trying to renew. But is this really where renewal comes from? He says, we cycle between running ourselves ragged and then retreating to the couch to binge on Netflix and Uber Eats, never working well, nor resting well. So how does this show up in the church, this paralysis? Well, you start to settle into a church, and then you start thinking, well, it doesn't have everything I want. I've really been reflecting on this as people decide to leave Oikos. It didn't have everything I want. And some of that is just like the nature of any kind of commitment. Any commitment is going to cut you away from everything. Besides, the the band is never as good as the one on the screen that I can just watch at home. The preacher certainly isn't as good as the one I can find on the podcast. And the community just isn't what it used to be or isn't what I'm really wanting. I'm afraid of committing. Let me go on and try the next one or just try the screen at home. There's a second sign of what he calls consumer Christianity, and the second sign is entitlement. This one's pretty straightforward. Entitlement just says, like, not only do I want it all, but I deserve to have it all, and with little cost. I don't want it to cost a lot. I want the best options, right? This is Amazon Prime. This is like, I want it now and for cheaper than anywhere I can find it. How about that? It's like, okay, here it is. That's consumer culture. That's, that sounds wonderful. I can have it all, and it doesn't cost me much. But it creates this toxic entitlement, the sense that we can have it all, but without any struggle, without any cost. Do you see how this might affect the church? How does it show up in the church, do you think? I was remembering Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Remember, if you've been through Welcome Home, you remember some of those lines of cheap grace. He wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. He's living in like 1930s, German Christianity that's turning to Nazism. The progressives in his country, they no longer care about Jesus. They're, they're Christians, sure. They're part of the church, yes. But discipleship to Jesus, no. And he sees them all turning into Nazis, literally. <laughs> and he's like, oh, this, what are we doing here, people? You think that all you need is what he calls intellectual assent to an idea to get its benefits? He says, that's cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's pretty, pretty hardcore. Love Bonhoeffer. He's trying to resist the entitlement of a culture that says, yeah, I want all the benefits of Christianity, but I don't want to actually commit to anything. It's not, I don't want it to cost me something. I, I want discipleship, sure, if by discipleship you mean not, not actually doing anything and getting the benefits of Jesus. Yeah, I want that. Last sign. All right, I'll, I'll move quick. I'm sorry I'm belaboring this. Sign three is blaming. Blaming. Okay. So if you want to have it all, and you want to have it without struggle or cost, what happens when you don't have it all? 
Because that's reality. No one is actually experiencing it all. Whether you're talking about Amazon Prime or Netflix or Uber, it's like every decision you make is a limitation of, of your freedom. And then you've got to blame somebody for why you can't have it all. And so he says in the church, he says, you start saying to God, God, this is in the book, The Entitlement Cure by John Townsend. He says, entitlement directs us to judge God for how the world works, for the bad things that happen to us that we don't understand, and for things that, that didn't happen that we desired. God, this is your fault. Or you start looking at the church, and this is your fault, church, or, or whoever. Mom and dad, they're going to be like the easy culprit. This is my, my, if you knew the house I was raised in, if you knew the home church that I came from, if you knew this, then you would know why I'm actually not committing and not doing anything. It's just over and over, we fool ourselves that, this is Sayers. We fool ourselves that someone else will solve the problem of our lack of discipleship. But then part of the blaming then ends up, at least for me and many of us, I become an object of the blame. I can blame God. I can blame church. I can blame my parents. But part of my cycle is also the condemnation that I'm actually the one ultimately responsible. And then who, who else can do this? So unconsciously, we continually shift blame to others for our own lack of growth. Then we circle back to condemning ourselves for our inability to achieve the lifestyle that we want. So if, if any of these resonate with you, and they do for me, then it may be that we're kind of absorbing a consumer culture without even realizing it, pervasive yet unseen. Pervasive yet unseen. So what do we do here? I think there's good news when it comes to a consumer culture within the church. And it's that every consumer church dies after a generation. <laughs> it, it just can't survive. And that most consumer Christians are leaving. Now, this is heartbreaking to me. I've, I've wept over this. My, my life and my ministry are dedicated to a renewal and a reversal of that. But there is a good news there. And the good news is that the numbness stings enough to notice it. You know what I mean? It's like where, like your, your mouth is coming out of that dentist appointment and the numbing stuff is wearing off and it's just irritating because you can't feel it enough. And we feel the consumerness enough to know that there's got to be a better way. And the better way is committing to the one true way of Jesus Christ, not the endless options. The, the better way is committing to a people to practice discipleship in community and in ministry. And it doesn't have to be at this church, don't get me wrong. There's lots of faithful churches in Shelby County. But it, the, the sting is going to stay until you find a way and until you commit. So what does all this have to do with what we're talking about today? You're wondering that. You're like, are we ever going to get to Matthew 25? Yeah, yeah, here we go. So instead of cheap grace, what would it look like to have costly grace? Bonhoeffer says it's the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of which a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchants will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for which sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. If you want costly grace, it looks like Jesus, and it looks primarily, I think, like the parables of Jesus. Jesus has hard stuff to say. We're going to look at one of those today. Let me just read it, but keep in mind that we're reading a fictional story. Jesus is making this up. 
He's making up for a, a truth and a point, but it's going to be confusing. That's actually part of why he tells parables. If you want to know, Jesus, why are you saying confusing things all the time? He's actually asked that in Matthew 13. So he's like, Jesus, why are you talking in parables? Why are you saying things that are hard to understand? Don't you know that these people are confused? He waits until his disciples come close. The, the crowds are away. And he says, this is why I'm telling parables. Why do you speak to the people in parables? Matthew 13, 10. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That's why I speak in parables. He's like, well, that didn't really clear it up. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. And they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. But, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Do you have ears to hear this morning? Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To the one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. And the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained you five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, and now I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would receive it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
I caught a few people this week, and I was just like, can you just read this and then tell me what stands out? Most of the people I asked would be like, that's weird. <laughs> Bags of gold? Talents? What's going on here? Why is he throwing people? Why is the punishment so severe? Why is he harvesting where he didn't sow? Why is he taking it away from a guy and giving it to the other one? There's just so many questions and confusion. There are two primary ways of reading this politically. There's the view of the political right. This is like a capitalist dream, right? Where the hero of the story is the first, second, the, the, the first and second servants who are entrepreneurs. They, they take wealth and they, they grow wealth exponentially. There's even a precedent for banking, for interest. That they love this, this parable if it was about a capitalist perspective on finances. But there's another politically motivated reading that comes from the left, and instead of capitalist, it's more Marxist. And instead of the hero being the first, second, first or second servants, it's the third servant. Just think of it for a second. In this reading, the master is actually evil and wicked. He's greedy. He's, he's one of those capitalists, after all. And so what we really need is somebody who will see the mastered master's wickedness and will give to the poor rather than taking from the poor to give to the rich. Robin Hood, after all, right? But imagine this. What if neither the politically right capitalist dream or the politically left Marxist dream is actually what Jesus had in mind? Could you consider today, instead of a modern political reading, an ancient Matthew reading? What I mean by Matthew reading is almost every phrase is an allusion to some other teaching text in Matthew. Matthew has five teaching blocks in the gospel. This is the last one. Matthew, I think, is expecting you to have read the whole thing and to know. And thankfully for us, we've spent the year going through the gospel of Matthew. And so for those who have ears to hear, you've heard echoes of so many of these themes. And so here's what I'm confident in. Even if my reading of this parable is wrong, I'm still saying everything that's true <laughs> because it's echoed in the other places. So what I'm going to try to do is, is mine from the gospel of Matthew and the previous teachings of Jesus in this gospel to make sense of what this parable, I think, is saying. And I, I don't think Jesus, just being straightforward, I don't think he's talking about your financial future and political uh, power plays. I think instead he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. So let's dive into this, this text. Would you consider those things? All right, let's go just kind of phrase by phrase. He says, again, again, which he's now connecting it with the thing that came before, it will be like a man going on a journey. So he, he's talked about, you don't know the, the hour or the day that the son of man's coming, and then he gives three parables real quick. There's, there's a man who's in charge of the estate, and he says, you got to keep watch. And then he tells the story in 25, verse 1. He says, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like 10 virgins or bridesmaids waiting for a wedding. We, we looked at that at, at our Advent gathering. And he says, it's going to be like that. The kingdom of heaven is what he's talking about here. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes on a journey. Jesus is going away. And it's going to take longer for him to return than it seems. Do you see why this might be relevant for an Advent season? He called his servants and he entrusted his wealth to them. Notice he doesn't give his wealth to them. He entrusted. 
And so though he doesn't give instructions for what they're supposed to be doing with this money, it's understood that this is given in trust, not as a total gift. So he's entrusting his wealth to them. To the one he gave five bags of gold. Now, if you're reading most translations, you know this is the parable of the talents, which is super confusing because, yes, that's the Greek word, but the Greek word talent meant a weight or a unit of measurement for money and gold and silver and fine metals. What does talent mean in English? Not that. <laughs> a talent in English means your ability. And do you know where we get this idea of what a talent is in English? We get it because English translators of the Bible didn't translate that word. And so it actually came from this text. All right, so our reading, NIV helps us a lot here is that it's not about a talent as in your ability or some unique gifting that you have. This is about a bag of gold. A talent is about 75 pounds. It's the largest unit of fine metal measurement in the ancient world. This is a huge amount of money. Scholars estimate this is about 10,000 days wages. In other words, a career's worth of earnings. So if you took the average earnings today and then you multiplied it over a career, 20 years, about 10,000 days, you'd get to about $2.3 million per talent. This is an extraordinarily large amount of money. He's given away millions, 10 million to you, 5 million to you, 2 million to you. This is a huge amount of money that we're talking about here. But are we talking about money here? I'm... We'll come back to that. So he gives five and two and to another one, each according to his ability. Now, are these abilities? No. Are they given according to ability? Yes. There is a difference there. The talents do not represent that individual ability, but they're allocated on the basis of it. They represent not the natural gifts or the aptitudes which everyone has, but the specific privileges and opportunities of the kingdom of heaven. That's R.T. France. What's beautiful to me is that this is not a one-size-fits-all type of master. He understands that this guy's different than this guy who's different than this guy. They have different abilities. I'm not going to expect the same thing from this person as I am from this person or from this person. I know them well. And I'm, I'm entrusting on the basis of what they can actually do. This is important for our reading of this text in the master's goodness, that he knows their abilities and the gift is entrusted on the basis of their abilities. And then he went on his journey. Now, we don't get any instructions about what he tells them to do with this, except that he's entrusted it to him. He goes on a journey and the man who received five bags of gold went at once and he put his money to work and he gained five bags more. Do you see those phrases? At once. Bruner's commentary, he says this at once, this word immediately, it has excitement about it. He gets after it, right? So he's excited. At once, he puts his money to work and he gains or he, it's literally the word for wins. It's used previously in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, we're going to be mining for Matthew. Do you remember Matthew 18? There's this really tough text to live out where he says, if you've got an issue with somebody, you need to go to them and confront them. And then if they turn, you have won your brother. That's this word. It's about gaining. It's about winning. It's about putting something to work and doing a hard thing and seeing a reward. 
And so he's got five bags more, and the one with two bags of gold did the exact same thing. We'll see that in just a second. He gained two more, but the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? This is a really weird thing to us. But can we just defend this guy for a second? In the ancient world, banks were not FDIC insured, okay? Like, they're not exactly reliable. In fact, rabbis at the time, Rabbi Messi, for instance, he says if you really want your money to be safe, don't put it in the bank. The best way to keep your treasure safe is to bury it in the ground. The Qumran community, you know how they're finding like the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves? We have found scrolls from their caves that are like treasure lists of all the treasures they've buried and where they are. It's like, that's the one you want to find for sure. Because then you can find all the other ones. That's, that's the Rosetta Stone of buried treasure in, in the ancient world. This is really common. This is actually one of the best ways to keep something safe. But the problem is he didn't give it to them to keep it safe. He entrusted it to them for the sake of investment and stewardship. So he doesn't want him to bury it in the ground, but he does anyway. And so after a long time, guys, doesn't it feel like Jesus is taking a long time? It brings me relief to know that he told story after story anticipating this is going to take a long time. He says, it's going to take so long at the end of 20, chapter 24, some of you are going to be caught off guard and surprised. It's going to take so long that some of you are going to burn through your oil and you're not going to be ready. It's going to take so long that some of you are going to dig holes in the ground and not do anything with the thing that's been deposited to you. It's just like, what are we going to do? Let's bury it. So he settled accounts with them. Remember, he's, he's an investor coming. The first advent is about recruiting. The second advent is about accounting. And so the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Hmm. Oh, to hear that, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. I've quoted this line before from Boromir in Lord of the Rings. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. When, when somebody important, when somebody special, when somebody glorious sees you and says, I'm proud of you, it just means everything. And to have this figure, this, this, this master who's returning after his long journey, after a long delay, and he finally shows up, and then for him to look at me and to say, well done, good and faithful servant. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. That matters more than anything else in my life. He says, you've been faithful. You're good and faithful. You've been faithful with a few things. Guys, we, we pray this prayer every week, right? You've given such a little thing as money. A few things, small things. And so he says, I will put you in charge of many things. You want great things? He says, take care of the small things. I was like, well, didn't you say a talent was 75 pounds of gold? And this guy has five talents, and now he has 10. This is millions of dollars. That didn't feel like a small thing to me. That's a small thing in comparison to what's coming. That's a small thing. Come and share your master's happiness. This is the really good thing. A lot of translations will say, come and share your master's joy. I think that the joy is a more full word here. It's, he wants to be with you. I'm excited to go be with you. 
It's, it's a beautiful picture. It's actually repeated, all of it, again, with the man with two bags of gold. Exactly, word for word, everything that this man who had greater ability and greater return, this man with lesser ability and lesser return gets the same praise of the praiseworthy, good and faithful servant. It's, you've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. He gets the same reward. But that leads us to the third guy, right? Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, now this is interesting. This is the word kurios. It's the word Lord. Jesus uses this word Lord a lot. And when he does, these are people who claim that Jesus is Lord. What does Jesus say about people who claim Jesus is Lord? If we're mining for Matthew, do you remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, a lot of you are going to say to me, Lord, Master. It's this word, Master, Master, Lord, Lord. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out? Didn't we do mighty works? Didn't we do all this in your name? And he's like, actually, I, I don't remember you. I never knew you. There's a lot of people who think they are disciples of Jesus, who Jesus says, I don't recognize you. This is another one of those stories where he's saying that there is a way to settle accounts. And it's not just on what you believe. It's not your intellectual ascent. It's not on the basis of cheap grace, to use Bonhoeffer's language. The, the judgment scenes that we see all throughout Scripture, you are saved by grace through faith. You are judged by works. Jesus consistently, over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, it's not just your beliefs, it's your behavior. Your behavior reveals who you are. Now, your behavior isn't the basis of your salvation, but it is a natural outworking of your salvation. Take a look at just a few passages from Matthew. Matthew 3. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You've got to have fruit, right? Okay. Matthew 7. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. He likes this metaphor. Next verse, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only who? The one who does, the one who puts into practice the will of the Father who is in heaven. A few verses later in Matthew 7, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, right? We, like the wise man, he built his house. Everyone who hears, hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But the one who hears and who doesn't put them into practice, he says he's a foolish man and his house is destroyed. Matthew 12. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. He says, you can tell, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. He says, it's the stuff that comes out of you. That's how we know who you are inside. It's what comes out on the outside. Whoever does the will of my Father, Matthew twelve fifty. whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my brother. He's consistent. He, you may not like the drum he's beating, but he's beating it all throughout this gospel. And so it's given in trust. And there's an accounting, and it's accounting not just based on you calling him Lord. It's an accounting based on what you did. But look how belief ties into behavior. It's one thing to say, belief alone doesn't save. Behavior is a reflection of those who are really saved. And it's a totally different thing to have your beliefs so skewed, because skewed beliefs will lead to skewed behavior. Look at what he says. I knew that you were a hard man. This word hard is a word that means harsh. 
or cruel. I mean, you would use it the same way if you described a hard person. They are hard. They're cruel. They're a miser. They are are just, I don't want to be around them. You harvest where you haven't sown. You gather where you haven't scattered seed. All of this is like an anti- landowner in the Old Testament, like a law-keeping landowner. He, he even leaves the outside for the poor, as the law requires, right? You, for the gleaning of people like Ruth and, and Boaz. It's this guy, he's not only mowing that, he's, he's going out even beyond into other people's fields, and he's trying to take it. He's, I knew that was you. And so I was afraid. Fear. I was afraid. Lots of people are afraid in the Gospel of Matthew. And generally, Jesus is there saying, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Although there is at least one time in Matthew where he's like, you should be afraid of the one who can kill body and soul in hell. Fear not the one who can kill body alone. So I was afraid. What ends up happening is he, he basically says, the greatness of God. God is so big. That's why I did so little. The servant, Bruner says, is justifying his puzzling non-activity with a theologically sophisticated argument. He's trying to sound smart, but really he's just explaining his laziness. He calls this, Bruner does, the innocence of laziness. Sounds nice. You fear failure, though, more than you fear God. And the truth is that love casts out fear. This seems to be the safest course of action. There is no risk involved, but as Francis says in his commentary, risk is the heart of discipleship. In the Gospel of Matthew, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want true life, it's a commitment of risk. So he says, I I buried, I hid your gold. See, here's what belongs to you. Nothing more to show for it. So his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. Now, these are obviously exact opposites of good and faithful. Good, wicked, faithful, lazy. Lazy servant, so you knew, you knew that I harvest where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed? It's interesting, he doesn't even respond to the hard, the harsh, the cruel comment. He does respond to this one, but he only responds in a question. And his question reveals that he doesn't actually believe this. He says, if that's actually what you thought, well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers and earned a little interest. You didn't even do the thing that you're now defending. You're blaming, blaming God. He says, it ends up being this religion that's concerned only with not doing anything wrong. Have you ever seen Christians like that who are only concerned with not doing anything wrong? You knew, did you? It doesn't hold up. And so he says, take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Now, hold on a second, because... If this guy's not harsh, he sure seems like it right here. If we're talking about money and finances. But then he says this in verse 29. I think this is the most clarifying set of verses in the whole thing. Do you see it here? For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever doesn't have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, why do I think this is so important? It's because, do you remember in Matthew 13 where we started when Jesus is asked, why do you speak in parables? And he says, let me tell you why. I I say it because a lot of people are hard of hearing. In this way, only the people who lean in and seek, the ones who aren't calloused in heart, the ones who are seeking after it, he says they get more and more and more. 
And this, this way of teaching, it, it reveals who has hard hearts in, in here, who has dull ears of hearing. Everybody's got ears. Not everybody can hear what I'm saying when I say it like this. And so this parable, I think, is exactly about that same idea in Matthew 13. It's not about money. It's not about politics. It's not about power. It is about the gospel of the kingdom. And for people who have received the teaching of Jesus in different measures, at different abilities, what are we doing with it? In that same chapter, Matthew 13, if, if you were to just go and read Matthew 13, it would be like a, a full commentary on this text, I think. He tells the story of parable of the, the sower or the soils. He says a, a sower, he goes and he scatters seed everywhere, which is part of why we know this guy's not telling the truth about who God is. God isn't just seeding one field. In, in every time Jesus is talking about sowing seed and harvesting, he's doing it all over the place. He says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth to do this. I want you to go to all nations. I want you to go all the way around. He's, he's sowing, Matthew 13, but some of it is choked out by Satan. Some of it is choked out by the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world. He says, but the good soil produces fruit, some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. He says, the gospel put in good soil produces fruit every time. It's beautiful. It, and to different measures, some hundred, some sixty, some thirty, some five talents, some two talents, some one talent. And sometimes that gospel gets in the soil and then something else pulls it up. I think what he's talking about here is the deposit of the, of the way of Jesus, of the gospel itself, of, of the kingdom of heaven that, that Matthew's been talking about and we've been talking about for a year. And so he says, I want you to take it from him and I want you to give it to the one who has more. Now, now, if you thought that the, if you thought that the um, master was cruel and hard and harsh, I mean, nothing in this parable suggests that other than this one wicked, lazy guy. For instance, a, a, just a few things that you can observe. He knows their abilities. He knows them as people. He, he sees a reward as getting to spend his happiness with them. He seems to be freely giving away millions of dollars. And notice here that the bag is taken and is given to the one who has 10 bags. We realize that even in the parable, they're, they're getting to keep all of his stuff. He's, entrust, he's giving it away. This is the opposite of cruel and hard and a miser. He gives away everything in the story. This, is, this, is he really hard? No. He's gentle and lowly. He says, I'm easy and light. We know this is who he is. Jesus, he's, he uses outrageous financial examples to tell stories, but that doesn't change who he is. He still sees the, the weak and the poor and the lowly. It's not that he doesn't want them to experience blessing, but he knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ, his gospel that he's giving, is the blessing that their hearts have been longing for. It's not wealth. He's concerned about wealth, but this gospel, he says, when it comes into poor people, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the misunderstood and the rejected, the ones who nobody sees, who feel like financially you have everything taken away. He says, they can't take away this. I've got more for you. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, now, here we are again. Weeping and gnashing of teeth again, Jesus? 
How many times in one Advent series can we use this phrase? Can we just talk about hell for a second? I know that's what you wanted to do this morning. This, this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's, it's just sorrow, right? It's, it's overwhelming emotion. But it's also darkness. Now, Jesus knows darkness. We sang about that. He steps from the light of the angels of heaven into the shadows of dark Bethlehem. In John 1, he, he steps from the light into the darkness, and the darkness doesn't get it. And so darkness is the scriptural symbol that means it's separated from light and separated from the one who's the source of light. It's separated from good because it's separated from God. That's the symbol of darkness in scripture. It's separation from God. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth is the emotional response to what that reality will be like. But the justice of hell, as it seems to me, isn't because all these people, I don't it, The justice of hell is, is partly because the people who end up in darkness wanted to be there away from God anyway. The people who end up away from God hated God to begin with. They thought he was harsh and cruel, harvesting where he didn't sow and gather where he didn't scatter. They wanted nothing to do with it. If the reward is getting to be with you and your happiness, I'll pass. I'll go with me and my happiness. I'll dig your stuff, bury it in the ground, and go on about my life, thanks. That, that's who Jesus is talking about when he talks about the justice of hell. It's giving people what they actually want. C.S. Lewis, he says, I'm going to quote him a few times here. He says, in the end, there's really only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. Or those to whom God says, your will be done. He says, in the end, everybody gets what they're asking for. Tim Keller, he wrote an article years ago. The late, great Tim Keller wrote an article years ago. And he says, these, these symbols, you can't lose sight of what they represent. The darkness, the outside, the weeping gnashing of teeth. These are symbols that are supposed to be like smelling salts to wake you up a little bit. It's like, Whoa, Jesus, you kind of came on hardcore there. He's like, yeah, I want you to listen up. There's real consequences. There is an accounting coming. And so it's, it's this wake up, keep watch moment. But he says a lot of people, when you just read them, they miss it. They miss the symbols. They're, they're biblical symbols. They're, Jesus said them, so we're talking about them. But he says most people don't care. They're not afraid of darkness. <laughs> they, they don't actually believe in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he quotes this, C.S. Lewis. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop, but there may come a day when you no longer can. Then there will be no one left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. This is the Christian doctrine of sin, that the wages of sin is death. It's not something imposed from the outside. It is the natural consequence of walking in rebellion to God. And he's like, I don't want you. Jesus says, I speak like this so that if you could hear it, I would heal you. 
But if you don't want to be healed, then you're going to just keep walking in your sickness. If the bridge is out at the other end and you insist on walking that way, and I'm telling you, there's another way that leads to life that gets you through the, through the Jordan. I can't, if you just want to walk off, you're going to. Keller read that description to a man who didn't care much about hell, and he said, to my surprise, he got very quiet. He said, now that scares me to death. And he almost immediately began to see that hell was perfectly fair and just, and be something that he realized he might be headed for if he didn't change. If we really want skeptics and non-believers to be properly frightened by hell, we simply cannot repeat over and over that hell is a place of fire. We must go deeper into the realities that the biblical images represent. And when we do so, we will find that even secular people can be affected. He says, we run from the presence of God, and therefore God actively gives us up to our desire. Hell is therefore a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us and then continue to stay forever barred from the inside. Though every knee and tongue in hell knows that Jesus is Lord, no one can seek or want that lordship without the Holy Spirit. And this is why we cannot say that no one goes to hell who does not choose both to go and to stay there. And what could be more fair than that? Now, I'll have to save more teaching on hell Scripture says a lot about hell. There's a whole lot more I wish I could share right now. But i got to wrap up. So, do you see this phrase? The one that's highlighted. That worthless servant. Do you all see it? That worthless. Yeah. The servant in Scripture is an important title. That worthless servant. And so here's what we need to really know about the justice of hell. Is that, yes, hell is a place of judgment. Whatever, whatever that judgment is and whatever those symbols point to, they're pointing to some reckoning, right? But here they're not only pointing to a future reckoning, they're pointing to a past for us. as people who just enjoyed the bread and the cup. They're pointing to a past where that worthless servant actually experience the full consequence of other people's failed judgment. That worthless servant. This is Isaiah 53. Where that servant, that worthless servant, despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. He is worthless. Surely, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Look at the end of 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was taken away into the judgment. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So whatever you say about hell, here you see that Jesus descended into hell to make the way out. And so as we keep watch, we have to wake up to this reality. That he, he actually wants you to hear. If you've got ears, he, listen up. 
He wants you to see this. He wants to heal you. He wants to give you everything and to give you more of it. He wants to experience eternity with you, to celebrate with you in your master's happiness. He's your master and he wants to share his joy forever with you. And you don't have to say yes. But there are consequences to saying no. Okay, so let me try to be practical for just a minute. And then I really just want to share my heart. I don't even know what time it is, but I'm just going to go with what I got. Um, Years ago, 1792, one of the first great missionaries is a guy named William Carey. He wrote, get this title, an inquiry concerning the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. All right, you got that? It's catchy. I love it. But William Carey, he he has this line where he says, if you want to expect great things from God, you're going to have to attempt great things for God. He's not on board with cheap grace. He's not on board with digging a hole and burying the deposit of the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life. He says, I want to go global with this thing. If I want God to awaken a revival in India... Sign me up, Lord. Here I am, send me. I've got work to do. I expect great things from God, and so I'm going to attempt great things for it. This isn't consumer Christianity, low risk, low commitment. He says, I'm going. You know what his elders said? They said, sit down, young man. When God chooses to save the heathen, he will do so with or without your help or ours. And Carrie went. How about this? D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, he dropped out of school, just stupid, uneducated is how he felt. He preferred to talk to kids because he was embarrassed to be around adults. Been there. He's in England, about to come over to America. And he has this guy, he says this line to him, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And it just stuck with him. He gets on the ship and he comes to America and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. The the world has yet to see. The world has yet to see. Just became this mantra. And on that ship ride over to the United States, he said, by God's help, I aim to be that man. You see, I'm not coming at this text from a place where I'm worried about darkness. Because I know that worthless servant who got me out. (laughs) I've been in the darkness. That worthless servant got me out. I'm not going back. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. You don't have to do this, right? There's freedom in Christ. You can do consumer Christianity and still enjoy the master's happiness, but there's more. Do you want more? You can trade in the one talent for the two talents. You can trade in the two talents for the four. You can trade in the five for the ten. He's got more for you if you've got more for him. I just, I really want to share my heart here for our church and for me primarily. What would it look like for the, for the gospel of the kingdom of God, the thing that's been deposited, this like a treasure that I want to sell everything I have to go all in for it? It's all I want. More of that, God. What would it look like? I'm going to share my heart. Maybe it'll resonate with you. I want the gospel in my heart like it's never been before. I spent 36 years so far on this planet, 
God, give me 36 more, but may they be filled with the gospel to never before seen levels in my heart. Can you imagine the transformation if I could just take the two and turn them into four? The gentleness, the kindness that I long for. But can, not just in my heart, the gospel in my heart, the gospel is going to produce fruit. It's going to be, when it's put into practice, if I consecrate my life and I make room, and again, you can, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to question your salvation. I'm just asking, do you want more? I want more. And I want more in my home. And I think if I want great things and I expect great things from God, and I've got I've to attempt great things for God. And if I want to be a good and faithful servant, I've got to consecrate my life in a way that reflects that. I have to say no to some things that I could say yes to. I've got to say yes to some things that I could just sit on the couch and watch another Netflix season or watch another football game or scroll through Instagram or blame my mom and dad or blame my church of origin or blame God in heaven. But I want more in my life and I want more in my family. And I'm thinking that if I can take the one or two talents that he's given me of the gospel, and I can turn those into four, what could my kids be given? Can you imagine just the generational entrusting of the gospel that could happen if I, and, and if, I, if I, I know I got Kelsey on board, if we could consecrate our home to be devoted to the Lord? Scripture says, 2 Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And he's looking all over the world for consecrated people. And it's, it's a sad reality in 2 Chronicles because there's no one consecrated. He has to look all over the world. And I want him to look here in Memphis and to see a church that is ready for him. Not just my heart, not just my home, but our church. This is my longing for our church that we would step into discipleship in community and ministry in real ways. Not because you have to. By the grace of God, that worthless servant gave you the gift of salvation, but the gift of salvation can be played out in such a way that our church can be a place of devotion to God, consecration, where we say yes to the Lord and to seeking him fully. My church, but also my city. This is my desire for my city. Titus 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and instead to say yes to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Here we are waiting. He says, Say no to worldly passions, say yes to godliness. The one who gave himself up to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 2 Timothy 2. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. But if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. 
Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see what he's saying? If you just consecrate yourself to me, he says, you've, you've got another five talents coming. And I don't pretend to be a five-talent guy, but I'm just saying, Lord, give me one more. Give me one more in my heart. I want to see that transformation. Give me one more in my home. I want our home to be devoted, to say no to some things that we could say yes to. And instead to say yes to some things you don't have to say yes to. So that Annie and Fletcher and Evie can, can take that generational deposit and take it another step forward. I want to say, give us one more. At the end of this year, as we look forward to 2024, give us one more at Oikos Church. Would you send us some more people whose hearts are fully devoted to you? Would you send us some group leaders? Would you send us some shepherds? Would you send us people who take their own discipleship seriously? We want one more in Memphis. Lord, what would it look like to have one more, just another deposit of the gospel that's actually bearing fruit? Just give me one more, Lord. Expect great things. He says, attempt great things. May you consecrate your life and your home and your habits for the, for the purposes of the kingdom of God and watch them work. Would you stand? I want to bless you. And then we'll go. Lord God, we know that the seed is good. And so would you plant it in our hearts and would you bring harvest would you bring the fruit of transformation to our hearts? Would you bring the fruit of transformation to our homes as we consecrate and make room for practicing discipleship to you? Would you give us more here at Oikos? Would you grow this church? And would you do it through discipleship? Would you give us more in Memphis where Memphis can see Oikos and they can hear that call of the gospel where we can go win a brother or a sister? Lord, we, we know the seed is good. And so bear fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.